got to get enough leverage on yourself. If you're hurting enough, stop hurting. Get enough leverage on yourself to move forward and move on. You know, and if you're feeling okay, you have lost your way, lost who you are, talk to some people. Plenty of groups out there now. But the biggest thing is get a handle on yourself, move forward, keep moving forward, get enough leverage on yourself to make that change. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials. Here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. What a treat I have for you. Many of you will know the gorgeous Cindy O'Meara and how often her and I speak together, share our time together, teach together, and do all sorts of wonderful adventures together. But this week, we get to go deep and down the big hole of what it's like to actually know who's right beside Cindy, and that is her gorgeous husband, Dr. Howard O'Meara. Now, beautiful Howard is someone that he's got a really interesting story. He started out after, you know, a tough time at school, really, as you'll hear in the podcast, and then moved into becoming a school teacher, majoring in physical education. But then as you'll get to know, this beautiful soul actually uh, sets high goals. And then once he achieves them, he's ready to move on. And after accomplishing what he thought it was a good career in teaching, he then moved into becoming a policeman, which he did for 10 years. And one of the stories he shares, which I'm sure you'll appreciate, is when he was the bodyguard with Prince Edward. He then became a chiropractor, as if that wasn't enough. At 32 years of age, he then went to Melbourne to study chiropractic. And that's where he met the beautiful Cindy. But he also then, with a love of sport, particularly around rugby and things, he was the head doctor and medic for the Sunshine Coast uh, rugby union team, rugby league team and basketball team, all whilst they were raising their four children. It's quite an incredible story as his high setting goal of working with elite athletes came true when he got to work with a beautiful dream team at the Olympic Games which I'll leave him to tell you, but that was the story where a gold medal was won in Sydney in 2000. And then Howie, having reached the top in all sports like that and supporting athletes to be their greatest, he then went into helping the gorgeous Cindy with her business and then the two of them joined forces and today have Changing Habits, an incredible company that's employed up to 32 people at one point and now certainly one of the leaders in the nutritional and health fields. I know you're going to enjoy this week's self-love podcast, so get yourself a cuppa, or if you're driving, don't don't kind of relax, but enjoy the show, and I would definitely recommend there's some wonderful quotes in here that Howie shares, beautiful stories, and an amazing podcast to share with the men in your life. Thank you so much for tuning in and for giving the self-love podcast a five-star rating I'm incredibly grateful. I will put the links to Howie's and Cindy's business in the notes as well as his quotes. And I think you'll get to see that giving some feedback either on my Facebook page, the Kim Morrison page, or on Instagram, Kim Morrison and the number 28, or you can go to the wellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. And I know that dear Howie will very much appreciate all your feedback. And I know you're going to really enjoy this week's self-love podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, as you can tell, 
I am very delighted, very excited to bring to you this week a very special soul, someone I've known for nearly two decades and have got to know very well through his beautiful wife, my husband, and we really are almost family, you could say. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, gorgeous Howard O'Meara. Hello, Kim. Well, good afternoon, Kim, and thank you so much for having me. It's uh, an absolute pleasure to be here. Ah, it's such a delight to have you. You know, so many people do know Cindy from Changing Habits and all of the amazing work and things that she does. But probably what a lot of people may or may not realize is that in order for someone to be so extraordinary, there's often someone very close right beside them helping to trailblaze the pathway. And you are definitely that for her. And she speaks very highly of that at times around how she couldn't do what she does without you, without her family. And obviously without the team. But before we go into anything to do with your beautiful wife, how about we go back to who you are and where you grow up? Because I'm kind of a little bit proud of the fact that we're both Kiwis. Um, we are very big All Black <laughs> yeah. supporters. But, you know, let's, <laughs> let's find out a bit more about you. If I, if I could ask you what led you who, to who you are and what you're doing today, you can take as long as you like. But give us your story. Who is Howard O'Meara? Gosh, um, where do we start? So, yeah, Kiwi boy, grew up in, uh, born in Whangarei, so way up north of Auckland, came down to Auckland, was about three years old, um, attended all the primary schools, intermediate schools and so on, um, high schools through Moraine Bay, um, North Shore of Auckland. Um, you know, I look back quite often on my childhood uh, and uh, I've been involved, I'll just take a step back, I've been involved a little bit with uh, some of the men's groups around the coast here, particularly um, some of the ones in the suicide, trying to prevent male suicide, and um, been involved a little bit with that. And I look back on my childhood, and it was really good to hear some of the childhood that some people have had has been atrocious. So I look back on mine with, with pride and uh, certainly with a high degree of happiness. You know, we had a lot of freedom. Um, you know, I was surfing, I was fishing, I was boating. Um, biking to school, you know, which was about 10 kilometres, um, things that the kids don't do today. So, you know, my childhood was great. I don't remember any sort of aggravation within the family, um, any problems in the family. It was just one real happy time. Yeah, my schooling, schooling was good. I didn't enjoy my high school life that particularly much. I think by that stage I'll get bored. Um, and one of the things I've learned about myself was I actually get bored quite easily um, I had set high goals for myself when I reached those goals. Uh, you know, it's time to move on. And so sort of schooling for me by the time I reached high school, particularly halfway through high school, um, I was bored. So consequently, uh, high school wasn't a great thing for me. And I left high school and tripped around Australia for a year or so with a group of South Africans and sort of let my hair down a little bit. Um, and that was a great learning curve for me as well. But, uh, yeah, high school, I remember an incident at high school very well. I think it kind of changed my life a little bit from way back then where I uh, were in intermediate school, so 11, 11 or 12, 12, 13 years old, and you sit an exam to go into high school. And I was in sort of one of the top classes in intermediate school, second from the top, and I sat this exam at uh, Murray's Band Intermediate School, and I really stuffed the exam. I mean, really stuffed it. So I ended up in 3E when I went to, uh, to high school. And all my friends and all my schoolmates that I've known for all those years going through primary and intermediate school, they're in sort of 3A, B or C. 
Um, and I was devastated. And I fought really hard and worked really hard to get out of 3E. And I, uh, I never seemed to be able to do it. I couldn't get out of it. Uh, I fought my way up to 4B, I think, no, 4C, um, and then 5C. But by that stage, I was kind of exhausted and really overschooled. So that, that high school experience for me was not a great one. And I think, you know, we talk about self-love and self-respect, and I think that high school was really a bit of a turning point for me initially where I'd gone from a very, very confident youngster to um, a not-so-confident high school person. And as a result, I believe as a direct result of that, going from that, uh, that high echelons of, of learning to uh, 3E, and it really took uh, a lot of confidence, shook my confidence. So it took me a while, I think, to recover from that. Um, joined the police in uh, Auckland and, uh, you know, had a, had a great life there. I don't know how much uh, we want to talk about that, Kim, but um, certainly 10 years of very, very good time, a lot of fun, a lot of group, group of good mates and friends out of that. Uh, quite an experience, quite an experience. And from there, uh, I was kind of after 10 years, I started to see the change in policing with the onset of a lot more violence, a loss of uh, self-respect really for the police. Uh, I started to carry firearms, which I didn't particularly like at that time. And, uh, yeah, the violence just grew and grew. So at that stage, I'd had a uh, rugby injury, playing rugby, and hurt my back, and I was a chiropractor that fixed my up, and I got really interested in chiropractic. So I basically tossed in everything I knew in New Zealand and uprooted everything myself and uh, came to Australia, applied for America and Australia, got accepted into Australia first into chiropractic school and spent five and a half years in Melbourne studying. So that was a massive change as well. So going from a pretty secure position within the police to uh, leaving everything, everything I'd ever known, basically, and uh, uprooting and coming to Australia was really quite a challenge, but one that I enjoyed. You know, it was five and a half years, and um, I often say now, if I look back on what I knew, knew now, I probably wouldn't have gone through it. It was five and a half years of very, very tough schooling. I think I was about 32 when I went there, and um, so an adult, adult student. And, uh, yeah, interesting time, tough time. You, uh, you had to clock in and out every day like you're going back to uh, high school. Um, you know, if you didn't turn up for a certain number of lectures, you failed. Um, yeah, it was just, when you even thinking about it now, it kind of sends a bit of shivers up my spine because uh, it was tough. It's interesting, my middle daughter's just, uh, my last daughter's just said she'd gone to Spain to study chiropractic as well. So I know exactly what she's gone through. And also my middle daughter is a chiropractor already. So um, they've gone through the same thing I have. But I don't think it was as tough now as what it was back then. So five and a half years is against four years. So interesting times, interesting times. It's an incredible journey, isn't it? And to go from that, I think you skipped a point too. You were teaching for a while as well, weren't you? Oh, I did actually. I missed that. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, before you went into the police, you were teaching. So what That's that fascinates right. me yeah. is you've always done jobs that help people. Talk to us a little bit about the experience of what it was to be a teacher then. That's right. Well, I sort of, I, I left school, um, did the usual track, I think, that a lot of people do. And I went to university, but um, kind of drank my way really through the first year of university. I think we went to just about every pub in Auckland and had so much fun. Um, and consequently, my grades were terrible. Um, and I realised that university wasn't really what I wanted to be. 
So I packed up with a couple of mates um, and tripped around Australia for a year. And that really, that was really good. That kind of grounded me a bit more. And I was sort of at the end of the first year, I realised, okay, now it's time to time to get myself into some sort of responsible job, if that's what we want to use. And I've always thought about school. I applied to uh, Palmerston North Teachers College back in New Zealand, got accepted there, and went back and studied there for uh, three years and um, came out with my teacher's degree, went to um, Tauranga, to Mount Wanganui. Uh, and if anyone is listening knows Mount Wanganui, uh, beautiful place, beautiful little town at that point. Lots of surf, uh, boating and fishing and diving, so it suited me down to the ground. And uh, taught there for a year and then got sent to a little uh, school called Taniatua, just outside of Whakatane. Um, sorry, Wanganui, Whakatane. And uh, loved that too. But then the same thing, I couldn't really see a great future in what I was doing. I loved it. And he's certainly contributing to society. But uh, the pay was terrible. And... Um, Again, it was that outside life I was craving for, and that's where sort of the police came in. I thought, well, again, I've, uh, I've got to get outside. I've got to get out and keep working with people. But it was also always, as you rightly pointed out, Kim, I've always been in a situation where it's been to help people, to try and help people through life uh, in whatever aspect of life or troubles that may be in. I've always sort of wanted to be there. Policing certainly was that, and teaching was certainly that. And policing, um, as I said, I enjoyed it. It's fantastic, but it certainly changed over the time that I was there. When I first started in little town, Takapuna, a little beachside resort, it was pretty quiet. We'd, we'd go to sleep on night shift. And uh, towards the end of it, it was pretty hectic. You know, armed assaults or uh, domestic violence was unheard of when I first started. And by the time I left, you know, you're attending two or three a night sort of stuff. So it wasn't a particular thing that I could see my, a long-term future for myself and a family. I was still single at that point, but... Family-wise, I couldn't see it. All my good mates had left by that point as well. So, yeah, it was again time to move on. So what was the next thing I could do to help people um, and help myself? And that was the chiropractic situation. When you think back to learning chiropractic at such, I'd say old age, 32, my goodness, um, but being an adult student, do you think having the wisdom and the experience of life behind you, let, let alone it being teaching and the police force, did that give you an even more broader perspective, do you think, of what it was to learn about the chiropractic world and all about the body? And did that have any influence on the way you learnt, do you think? I think it was harder uh, for me to learn. Um, being in that adult, adult mindset, I guess it was harder. But in terms of stability, older student helped me in that respect greatly. But um, it was a whole new world for me. The chiropractic was a whole new world for me. You know, going from school teaching to police. Um, you know, I did have a degree in physical education, teacher's degree in physical education. So I knew something about the human body. I knew something about health. But was I practicing those belief systems or the knowledge that I had? No, I certainly wasn't. Not so much in the police, certainly, because uh, you know, night shift and long days and plenty of stress. You know, uh, lots of alcohol, lots of partying. Um, and certainly to go from that, that world back into a chiropractic world, which was solely geared to, to health, was very, very, very interesting and kind of mind-boggling, you know, to, to learn about the human body. I mean, we did human dissection the first three years, so dissected the human body from head to toe. Um, and that was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. 
but not only in terms of like the physical things in terms of chiropractic, there's a human dissection and all the textbooks that you had, but also um, the emotional, physical. Um, you know, chiropractic really is an energy thing. You know, if someone had talked to me when I first went to chiropractic and knocked on the, knocked on the door of the university when I first arrived and said, well, it's all about energy, you know, I would go, well, you know, what sort of a nutcase place am I arriving to? You know, it was completely unheard of, new world, completely new world for me. So, yeah, to learn about energy transfers and the body um, in general, it's just, yeah, I'm even now I'm struggling for words because it was mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing, whole new system. And I think <clears throat> it was my age that kept me in there. A lot of people did fall by the wayside as we went through, but um, it was my age. But also, too, you know, I got over there, I left home, and <laughs> there was no way I was going back, you know. There was no way I was giving up. Um, you felt like it sometimes because the study was so hard and so long. But, um, yeah, my age sort of said, well, I think the maturity, you know, I'm just not going home. I'm going to see this through. I'm going to going to, going to win here. It's going to be a win-win for everyone. I'm going to see this through and, uh, and practice chiropractic as I'd seen the chiropractor work on me and help people. So in that aspect, stood me in good stead being that slightly older. A bit more sensible maybe might be the word we could use. <laughs> so one of the things that I absolutely have learnt myself and love about you know, all the different modalities out there is that chiropractic seems to have a very, a very holistic, a very big view on health and wellness. Could you just explain to someone who may have never tried chiropractic care before, or what is it about it that stands out to you that makes it different to other modalities? A good question. Good question. In terms of chiropractic, there are many, many different techniques out there. But I believe they are, they're all aiming for the same thing. It's a very holistic approach to health. So instead of focusing just on one ailment or one problem, so to speak, <clears throat> you look around the body and you correct everything you can find. So, for example, someone would come and say for me for, for low back pain, um, which is a common complaint within the chiropractic, although I don't treat low back pain, um, I treat the human body. Or look after the human body, but someone will come and say, well, I've got low back pain. So, you know, our, our modern medicine or whatever other modalities or other, um, well, I think of physiotherapy or naturopathic or whatever, you know, we tend to get in and look at that particular low back and look at the muscles around it, this kind of thing. Whereas chiropractic for me, I, you know, I look at the whole pelvis, look at the whole structure of the body. Look at what's going on the legs and the knees, mid part of the back, shoulders, head, neck, but also what's going on within that person themselves. So low back pain can be caused by a number of things and particularly uh, emotional. So you look at um, you know, various techniques you can use. You track down what's actually happening in the body. So a lot of it can be emotional. So chiropractic to me is looking at the whole body. What is different about chiropractic? It's a holistic approach. If you don't look holistically and try and correct everything that's around it, plus the complaint that's they've come in for, then everything's just going to keep on returning. So very complete picture, holistic picture. And that includes, you know, your diet, your mental health, your physical health, and your spinal health. I always just say to people, you know, there's, there's basically those things that, ever, that you must take into account. Your physical well-being, your spiritual well-being, your emotional well-being, dietary, 
and chiropractic. And if you look at all those five things to get them into balance, then you know the world's going to be a better place. You're going to be a better place, and uh, we can all move on from there. Yeah, it's powerful, isn't it? And I think that's probably what I love so much about it. I want to ask you then, while you were at uni studying and learning more and more about the body, did you see yourself at that stage in your life going on to support future gold medalists, going on to be involved in sport in such a way that you, you know, that, that most people would dream of? Like, how did that work out for you? And tell us a little bit about that incredible story. It's, um, it was always a goal. Uh, people who know me, you know that I'm very goal-driven. And sometimes that can be a bit of a problem because I reach my goal and then I go, well, that's enough now. I've got to move on to something else. Um, but with my sports background, physical education background, teaching background, I always had this goal to be the team doc of something, you know, some sports team. So whether that uh, – it was never initially to be Olympics. It was just to be looking after top-class athletes, whether it be at home or overseas, it didn't really matter. It was just a belief that I could get in there and do this stuff and look after, look after top-class athletes. So when I left or finished up in the chiropractic degree, I thought, okay, how am I going to achieve this? We bought a fairly rundown practice in Malulaba, uh, and I thought, well, okay, I've got to build this thing up. So I approached local sports teams, so it was a rugby league, um, the rugby union, and the basketball, who are all the top levels, top teams here in, in the sunny coast, um, to become team doc. So through an application process, I became team doctor for all those three teams. And that really built my practice. So my week would start off, and bearing in mind, you know, when I come up to the Sunshine Coast, we had um, a young baby. So it was pretty tough, pretty tough on the family. But I thought, well, how else am I going to provide for the family um, and achieve the things we want to achieve if I don't sort of get my head down and my backside up? And work. So my week used to sort of look like Monday night would be basketball training, Tuesday night would be rugby union, Wednesday night might be off, Thursday night would be rugby league training, um, Friday night would be a basketball game, Saturday afternoon would be rugby union, Sunday would be rugby league and keep repeating that over and over and over again. Now, it was pretty tough, uh, pretty tough on the family, but I must admit, yeah, I loved it. I was just involved with the sports and working very hard, and it built the practice. And um, my goal then sort of, well, I've got to branch out a bit more from here. And it's, I think once you send, not I think I know that when you send out those vibes and send it out to the universe, that what you actually do and keep that in the forefront of your mind, things actually happen. So I always wanted to uh, to get to the Olympics, and it was through couple of chance, chance meetings. I looked after a couple of athletes from Ghana who were actually training on the Sunshine Coast prior to the Commonwealth Games in Auckland in 1990, um, who happened just to end up in my clinic. And I uh, looked after them, and they recovered very well, and they then recommended the whole team. So I was going down and treating the whole team, and through that I got invited to the Commonwealth Games in Auckland in 1990. Um, went to Barcelona Olympics 1992 with, uh, with the African teams. Um, met Natalie Cook, beach volleyball. Um, we got on so well. Uh, I looked after her for quite some time, and then the, the relationship just blossomed from there. So from there on, you know, I was virtually the team doc for the beach volleyball. And uh, it just grew and grew and grew. So sort of three or four Olympics later and many Commonwealth Games later and the international events later, um, that's, that was me. I loved it, loved it. 2012 was when I quit, so I didn't go to the London Olympics. Um, 
At that stage, too, one of my goals really was to get a recognition of chiropractic within the Olympic movement. And by the time I left in 2012, they actually had chiropractors working in the Olympic village as part of the whole medical team. Um, again, I said I didn't go in 2012. Um, I felt that my, my job was kind of over. Um, it was time for me to move on to something else. I'd reached my goals. But it was so nice to see the chiropractic world accepted into the uh, Olympics and certainly into the medical village. So, yeah, awesome result. After all those years, kind of feel like you're battling to get chiropractic recognised and to uh, see it recognised in the Olympics was just an awesome feeling. And which year was it that you got to be there to watch? Was it the Sydney Olympics when Natalie and Kerry got to win the gold medal? Yeah, yep, Sydney Olympics, Sydney Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm terrible on dates and times. I kind of think yeah, it seems funny, but I've been to so many. So it was uh, Barcelona. Uh, was that the next one after that, Sydney? Because um, I went to Athens as well. Um, honestly, Kim, I can't remember, but Sydney, I was there. Yeah, I was in the in the stand, grandstand, along with uh, Natalie's parents and so on. When uh, when we we and I say we because it was certainly a team effort. That um, yeah, grab the gold. Awesome moment. Awesome moment. It so was. I remember watching it, and it was just incredible to watch these two women take it to the top. So, what an amazing opportunity for you to be part of that, and what an amazing blessing for them to have you as a part of that. I'm sure it all came together for all of you, but. I'm curious then from your perspective, you are goal-driven, you are very um, purpose-driven and you love to set high goals, achieve them and then move to the next thing. Have you ever failed, if that's the right word, not got a goal? And if so, how have you handled those low points when things haven't gone according to plan? Yeah, look, another good question. The answer to that would be no, I have never missed out on my goals. Um, achieve the goals that I've set out to do. I guess how have I achieved those? Simply by focusing in and not letting things get in your way. You know, there's always, always going to be a time we have to take a back step. You know, you feel like sometimes you're taking three steps forward and three and a half back or two and a half back or whatever. Um, and it's just a matter really of just keeping moving forward. In fact, one of my favourite sayings is there's no such thing as failure, only results. And that's virtually stood me in good stead as well. You know, you just, you know, how, do you, how do you get experience as well? We get experience by making mistakes. How do you make mistakes? By getting experience. You know, it, it's, it's, there's no such thing as missing out, no such thing as failure. So I just kept on moving forward the whole time, Kim. Kept moving forward. Maybe half a step back, two steps forward. Two steps back, three steps forward. No, always just focusing in, staying clear on what you're doing, having a clear vision of what you're doing. But also, too, on that is having a clear vision, you know, of who you are and what you are and what your capabilities are. Um, you know, and sometimes your capabilities, you're doing something that's, that is above your capabilities and you think, well, okay, what am I going to do now? Well, you've got to go and start to retrain it or start to learn it or upskill. And that was a whole part of it too. And I used to love that. Now you go, well, okay. You know, I'm missing out here. There's something I'm missing. I'm not learning enough or I'm not providing enough care or I'm not providing enough attention or I don't know a bit, this bit about the body. What do I need to do? Go and learn. Go and learn. So virtually all this stuff has been a massive learning experience. Along every trip, every journey, every place I've been, it's always growing, always learning, always moving forward. 
you know, and, and even now people are saying, well, you know, the company that you've built and things that are happening here now, what's the next step? Well, still learning. Do I want to ever stop? No. You know, just you know, keep moving forward, keep learning. Um, I guess that's almost like the fountain of youth as well. You know, you keep learning and keep being of value, I think, to the world. So short answer to your question, have I ever failed? No. Has it been tough? Sure, there's been some tough spots. Have you ever looked back and got depressed about it? Something like that? No, never. You know, it's all learning. It's all part of the whole process of just getting through this thing we call life. So true. Do you mind if I go back a little bit? Because you were a, a very young man when you lost your father very young. How does a young man who's just finding his own way, and you've mentioned how tough it was for you getting through school and then got into teaching and then you lost your dad, how did you deal with that and how, what did you learn for yourself and how, did it make you a bigger, better person? Yeah. Um, gosh. Just got a bit emotional then. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> just know that that was one of those big turning points for you. And and it's just, you know, there's so many people out there. You were talking about mental health and wellness and things like that. And there's a lot of people losing people young. And I, I know that wasn't your dad's scenario, but I just I'm very conscious of how young men get through these times and what they do to find themselves as they navigate it. Yeah, I I really never realised how much um, my dad meant to me till some years later. Um, yeah, you know, when he died, you just you just kind of you just carry on, you just carry on carrying on. Um, and I remember I was I'd, um, I was in the police. In fact, I was just I was almost twenty, um, still at school, still at um, Jesus College, and. Um, when he died, and uh, it was many years later, I was sitting on the beach on the Sunshine Coast. So I finished my chiropractic degree, gone through the police and everything, and I was reading a, a book by Steve Bitter um, called Manhood. And uh, yeah, sorry, come here at the moment. <laughs> so it said uh, Steve Bitter said, "Oh, you know, you've got to forgive your father." And um, yeah, I, I'd never forgiven him for dying, and that was. Uh, that was a real turning point, that point for me, you know, to just to forgive him. Because um, even at the stage, you know, we were, we were building a boat together and, and I sort of, my, my two older brothers weren't really into the sports that I was. My father was right into sports. He was a very good rugby player in his day. So we were doing a lot of stuff. We're planning a lot of stuff together. And he died and he just, you just as a young kid, you just carry on. Um, I didn't realise how much it affected me till I read Steve Biddup's book. And when I when I forgave him for dying, um, like another whole world sort of opened up as well, a more of an emotional world. I think prior to that, I probably wasn't in touch with my emotions of what I could have been. Um, but that certainly was a turning point in learning a bit more about myself as to who I was, where I'd come from, and the respect and the time that I'd had for my father. Mm time all right and how did that impact your brothers and your mom and did you come closer together as well as finding that or carrying on or was it just the same for everyone carry on carrying on I think um yeah I grew up in that period of time that you know to be a man you didn't cry you didn't show any emotion you just sort of you know shrugged it off and kept moving and I, I, that's what happened. 
you know, um, I'd lost my oldest brother quite a few years before that. He had a brain tumour um, and unfortunately lost him when I was about 19. So it was my, my older brother, um, myself and a younger sister. Did it pull us together at that time? No, I don't believe so. I think it pulled us together later. Um, that same episode that I had sitting on the beach on the Sunshine Coast, I, I believe my brothers and my, my brother and my sister had the same sort of situation as we grew older, realised that, hey, you know, there's only us here, um, you know, as a family and as a brother and sister that we had to pull a bit more closer together. So it, it helped in later life. But in, in the stage when my dad died, no, you just picked yourself up and kept going. Um, and I just remember, you know, some of these things, oh, come on, let's get going. Come on, let's not cry over spilt milk. Come on, pick yourself up. Yeah, yeah, men don't cry. Shrug it off. Come on, let's go. Um, and it took me quite a while, I think, to be able to learn that it was okay to show your emotions. It was okay to be hurt. It was okay to uh, have tears in your eyes. And it was okay to, to love unconditionally. So when, when Dad died, we just all kept on going, which was really quite sad when you look back on it. Um, you know, mom, my mother came from, uh, her parents were in India way back. Um, so she came from a pretty sort of strict household. My dad's household, his father died when he was very young. My dad was the oldest of three siblings, so he virtually looked after the family. He went to work very early in his life and supported his family and supported our family. So that's where that kind of, you know, pick yourself up, keep going, don't worry about it, move on, that kind of stuff happened there. So a wake-up call many years later for, for all of us, for my brother and my sister, we woke up a few years after. It's tough, isn't it? It's the highs of life and, and how it throws us at times. Yeah. Not sure we're ever qualified to deal with any of the shocks and the traumas of life like that. How does it compare, in your humble opinion, difference between men and women? Is it because men were brought up to, to be that stiff upper lip, keep calm, carry on kind of thing? Do you think it's different for men and women? And has it changed, do you think, now that you're watching your own son become a father and all of those things? How is it different from your time? Oh, look, it's for me now, it's massively different. Um, you know, again, back then it was, you know, you know be a man. Um, and the other thing is to hear at school too, you know, is, oh, you just love yourself. Ah, oh, you just love yourself. You no, know? very sarcastic comment. You know? um, yeah, be a man, pick yourself up. You know, let's keep going. To today, where, you know, you see it on the football in the NRE, you know, there's, there's lots of hugs going around. and and men are actually shedding tears, lots of tears these days. I think the gap between male and female is a lot closer now, a lot closer. And it's great to see, great to see. I'd hate to see that gap that we used to have as, you know, as I was growing up and I think it was in my, in my dad's generation to continue as such a wider gap as what it was. You know, I, I always make sure that I give my kids a hug these days uh, as much as I can, tell them I love them, um, all that kind of stuff. I know my parents loved me and loved my brother and my sister greatly, immensely, but it was never really sort of said or shown that much in that generation. So massive change in generation, massive change in me from what I was, and I'm, I'm hope and belief that I've passed that on to my kids now where they can hug someone unreservedly, cry unreservedly, show their emotion unreservedly, not be afraid of it, not be ashamed of it, and get it out there and just talk, talk to people. 
talk to us, talk to whoever needs it, that kind of thing. So the gap is a lot, lot closer, I believe, coming a lot closer in the emotional stage. I think the gap is widening in terms of occupational. Um, I think that's creating a lot of problems these days, but that's a whole different topic. It sure is. And I think I'm very, very grateful that that we have you in our life and very grateful that we've had some wonderful, deep and meaningfuls over many years. I want to... Thank you, maybe we've had quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, I love it. Yeah. Um, as, as, you've, as you've aged, if that's the right word, as we all age and as we watch, as I said just before, our children having their children and as you watch the, I guess, the the result of raising children and what you and Cindy have done and created such a haven and such a beautiful family unit and incredible kids. All four of your kids are amazing and I just feel so blessed to have watched them grow and become who they are today. What is your greatest, um, most proudest moment of, of all four of your kids? Is, is it separate? Is it different? Is it the same for all of them? What's, what's your most proudest moment as a dad? All, all the kids are vastly different. Um, you know, you have your little stepping stones along the way, uh, and it gives my life is so involved really in sports. Um, the proud moments for me were sports when the kids achieved things, and it wasn't about win- winning. It was just simply achieving and getting out and doing stuff. Uh, very proud when Casey uh, became the chiropractor, very proud when Brogan uh, completed his carpentry um, situation there, very proud now Tanya's heading to Spain. But, you know, if I wanted to summarise the whole thing, the proudest moment of all each time was their birth when each of them were born. Just, just amazing, absolutely amazing to hold these little kids in your hands, you know, and, and just, yeah. And it's now the same with my grandson, grandson, granddaughter, you know, to hold them in your hand and you just go, wow, look at this, look at this life, you know, and then you look at their little fingers and their ears and everything's created perfectly. And I remember with uh, my son measuring his foot, you know, his foot was the size of half the size of my thumb. And you just go, wow, you know, yeah, it's so proud. So proud. Nothing can beat that. Nothing. Mm. I remember sitting with, because obviously Fran is a little bit older than the other ones, and I remember sitting there with her one day and she said how amazing it was to, to be like the big sister of these three. And she obviously watched them growing up and perhaps in her own way mothered them to an extent. How did you guys so successfully manage to merge your families and also, you know, allow a space for each one of them to be so different and individual and yet still remain so connected because that's something that you guys have done so beautifully. So how have you managed to do that? Gee, that's a, that's a tough question, Kim. Um, how do we do that? I Honestly, I don't really know. Um, there's I no can tell you. I can tell you. <laughs> you tell me. You tell me. I just think you guys have so much love and so much care and appreciation for everyone's differences and everyone's um, need to be loved. And you embrace people and even people that aren't your family. You make them feel like they're part of your family. So if I was so bold to say, I would say it's this incredible, never ending, full, bountiful love that you guys offer and you and Cindy at the helm 
particularly after, you know, losing your mum, her mum, her sister, and obviously recently her dad, it's been really amazing to watch you guys all come together even more. And so I don't know if you agree with me, but maybe it's so hard to see the wood for the trees, but the love is immeasurable for you guys. Probably something I haven't really thought about in terms of that. It's just, it's just something that you just get out and do. Um, it, it kind of comes naturally. As I said, there's no books out there that you can, that you can learn from that teaches you really about parenting. So it all comes from instinct. Um, and the fact that you said it all comes from love, um, yeah, awesome, <laughs> awesome. I wouldn't have, have recognised that. It's just something you do. It's, I said instinct. I would still go by that as instinct. You know, sometimes as a parent, you're flying by the seat of your pants, but if you trust your instinct, and you'd be good, you know, just be good. Um, be a good person. Um, it'll flow through to your kids. Definitely, definitely. I don't remember ever raising a hand to my kids, you know. Sure, we had some, we had some tough times. They do things that you don't agree with. Um, you know, some of them were pretty, I wouldn't say devastating, they were tough. But you just oh, They were naughty. They were very they naughty. Were. And if they listen to this, <laughs> then I can say as their adopted auntie, they were very challenging. <laughs> oh, 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 well, we had ones that would leave home fairly early and um, yeah, that was a bit daunting and a bit challenging. Um, you know, they've all had the challenges along the way. But, you know, as I look back you know, on all of now, we've... Uh, very fortunate. We've got some great kids. We've had no problems. We've got no drugs or alcohol problems, and they're they're moving along very uh, very satisfactorily forward in their lives. So it's good. I don't. I wouldn't have a definite answer for you on that one, Kim. Honestly, and I think probably you, looking from the outside, knows more about it than I do from being on the inside. Mm. Well, that's what I mean. You can't see the wood for the trees sometimes when it's so natural and it's such a part of you, but. You know, Cindy and I were laughing the other day. We were talking about our love of caravans and, well, I was saying to her how much I'd love one. And then I cracked up and said, there is no way I would travel around this country, any country for that matter, with my darling husband. God bless him. But if anything broke <laughs> or... Hello, Danny. Go, oh, gosh, I tell you what, I would, I would freak. But Cindy was saying she has always felt safe with you. And that's something that you're extraordinary with. You are amazing in a crisis. You're amazing at making things happen. Was How did you two work out that you were going to travel around Australia in a bus for two years? Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like as the father of that and how you guys managed to pull that off and still maintain such an incredible love and energy and particularly of life and learning? How did that work out for you guys? Well, if you talked about um, the safety aspect of it, I think that goes back to my policing days. And even today, my kids, dad, my kids say, Dad, stop being a policeman. There's always, once you're a copper, you're always a copper. There's always something in the background of your mind, the little things that you recognise or you see or you take note of that stir little images. So in terms of safety, I was always so much aware of safety and protection of my family. And that, again, as I say, comes back to policing. Um, you'll be aware of some of the jobs that I did. You know, I was working with the Royal Family, so I was bodyguard work. Uh, that training, in terms of self-defence or better protect my family, stood me in very good stead. So I always kind of felt safe for my family and safe for myself. There was not one instance, travelling around Australia, where I felt unsafe, 
through things that we'd planned or not planned. Um, perhaps there's one incident in the Karajini National Park in the gorge there where we got stranded a little bit, night, nightfall was coming down and things got a bit, um, bit hectic there. But um, I always knew that we'd get out or knew, always knew that we'd be safe. And I never ever did anything. And some people might find this boring, but with your family safety is at stake, I never really did anything that put my family at risk. So if we'd park up for the night, I'd make sure that we're parking in a safe place. You know, you wouldn't go and park the bus in a, in a pub area or in the car park of a pub or something. So if you're parking outside of town, you make sure you parked a fair way out or you knew what the town was all about, you knew what was happening in the town. Um, so it was pre-planning. And that, that again, is, is policing as well. You know, forethought of where you're going to be, what you're going to do, and then if something did happen, what you're going to do about it. So I had various things strategically stacked in the bus too halfway down, such as a hammer and a and a uh, what we call tomfire, which is a martial arts weapon, um, packed strategically in the bus where I could get to it easy. Um, so I felt perfectly safe, you know, and I think the fact that I felt safe, that flowed onto the family as well. And then when you think about the two years, were you always going, did you plan to be on the road for two years or was it just that it was so amazing that you guys kept going. I mean, you circumnavigated the whole of Australia, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, circumnavigated and right through the middle, um, right the way around. Yeah, it was awesome time, absolutely awesome time. I look, I look back on that with such fond memories um, because, you know, I was working so hard to build the practice and, and all this kind of thing as guys do. You work so hard and provide for the family. Um, but we got a, we started to get a little bit disjointed in terms of the family. Uh, and my commitments to sports and this kind of thing. And I'd read a book years ago called The Drifters. Um, I can still see the book. I can't remember the name of the author, a very famous author, but it will come to me soon, but The Drifters. And it was all about this young couple who had travelled through Europe in a combi van, and I'd always wanted to do it. So actually during my policing days, I took time off, and uh, I, was, I took about nine months off, and I actually did the same thing as they'd read about the book, um, we got a combi van and tripped all through Europe. So I always had that that camping, that travelling, that travelling bug in me. So when it came time, we were, I was feeling a bit disjointed, working too hard, certainly got burnt out, absolutely got burnt out in the practice. And um, just started to think about the book, The Drifters, and the fact that, you know, we'd gone around Europe in a, in a combi. Why not go around Australia? And, okay, if we do, how are we going to do it? Well, I wanted to go in... It was, certainly wasn't luxury. The bus wasn't luxury. It was an old but in 1972 British Leyland uh, that I did out. But I wanted to do it in, in a nice way that the kids would remember, that everyone would remember, would have great memories of it. Um, how was I going to do that? So I just started looking for a bus. It took me a while to convince Cindy. She'll say no. <laughs> but, but I remember talking to her about a few years before we actually did it. She was horrified. Um, yeah, how are we going to live? How are we going to make our money? But I just had faith and trust that we'd get around safely and uh, – you know, that, that finance would come to us to be able to provide food and fuel and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I just went for it. But like like everything I go, just go, just get out and go. Set your goal, have this idea and go for it. And best time, Kim, best time. Brought our family close together. We homeschooled our kids, brought some, um, it was a Christian program, not that I'm from a Christian family, but it was a Christian program that basically got our family back to um the three hours reading, writing, arithmetic, um, you know, and the education that they had of tripping around themselves, you know, would pull up in a spot that Matthew Flinders had actually been to, you know, we'd learn all about the history of the, of the explorers. 
um, and socialization. You know, you pull up in the campsite so the kids would be out there talking to people of all ages, all walks of life. Something I'd recommend to everyone, everyone. We get so tied up now, seem to be in making a living. You know, just pack your family up, take themselves away, even if it's for a couple of months. You don't have to go for two years, but just pack your family up, get away, take a break with all of you together. When you can find space like that, you, know, you have to get on. And um, yeah, I loved it. I, even now I'm talking now, I've got a big smile on my face. It's just, you know, it tingles down the spine. It was just a fantastic time, awesome time. I'd do it all again. Yeah. And I, someone said to me, what would you do back in your life? They said, I'd have kids all again because I loved it. And I'd go around Australia with them again. So hopefully we'll do that with our grandkids. I was going to say, you might be, they might be asking you to take their, grand, their, their children away for a couple of years. Now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the lack of sleep going on at the moment, I'm sure. <laughs> it's um, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Just, um, yeah. So that, that sense of going around in a bus, that confinement and everything you're saying, you know, in this day and age, and I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts of the way the world is right now, I mean, if ever there was a time to do something differently, it would be now. Is that something you'd recommend? It's um, yeah, it's a tough, tough world now at the moment, isn't it? Strange world, probably not tough world. It's only as tough as you want to make it make it be. It's a strange world. We've um, you know, we have this conversation all the time with with swimming mates and this kind of stuff. I um, I refuse to get tied up in it. No, if you get tied too much up in what's going on in the world, you wouldn't do anything. You know, the world's such a bad place and this is happening, that's happening and the world's going to collapse and the property market's going to collapse and all this kind of stuff. And you'd be too scared. You'd be sitting inside your shell, shivering and not doing anything. So I take note of what's going on, um, but I refuse to get tied up in it. And if I had any sort of words of wisdom, I'd say to the same people, you know, okay, be aware of it. A lot of it you can't control, but you can control yourself and you control the environment around you. You can certainly contribute to your family. So pack up and go. You know, Queensland's open. I think, you know, before too long, we're going to find other places open. Um, but it should not be a contributing factor. You know, set your goals, have the mindset, figure out what you want to do, and damn well find a way to do it. Okay, if you've, still, if you've got some restrictions, well, so what, you know? You're going to find another way. You're still going to enjoy yourself somewhere along the line. Line, you're going to find a way around it, and that's that's kind of my belief system. Just get up and go. Don't be restricted by it. Take note, but that's just keep living your life as you want to live it on your terms, right? Yeah. Oh, exactly. No one else's terms. You know, you can say, well, yeah, we've got the vaccinations coming in, your passports coming in, and so on. Okay, I understand that, and someone is dictating to me what I can and can't do to a certain extent. But I can still travel here within beautiful Queensland, you know. I can still do stuff. I can still go to the beach every day. I can still swim. And if I think of those people in Victoria, New South Wales, confined to the house, yeah, I understand it's tough. I really do. Have I experienced it? No, I haven't. But I'm sure that, um, you know, you set your mindset right. You know it's not going to be forever. Move through it. Move on. Yeah, really good advice. And I'm sure for each of them, they're doing an incredible job, really, given how tough it must be. And I sometimes think I had someone saw me, I put a post of a beautiful sunny beach and I was sitting on it not long ago and she went, oh, chance would be a fine thing, you know, and I sometimes forget just how blessed we are in this part of the world particularly. Um, You skipped over something very, very quickly just a while back and I'm going to bring you back to it. 
you're the bodyguard for the royal family. Can you tell us what that was like and how did you protect them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was, oh, look, I loved that part too. That was, that was an incredible part of my life. So I look back to it with, with great fondness. Um, and actually, it was not so only about four years ago, I caught up with Prince Edward um, in England as well. So we still stay in contact, uh, not as much as what we used to. Um, but, yeah, my school teaching background, my physical education background stood me in good stead. So Prince Edward, every member of the royal family, so Prince uh, Charles went to the school down in Victoria. Prince Andrew went to Canada. Uh, Prince Edward uh, came to New Zealand as a tutor. So they, they go to schools and work within the schools and just help out in the schools as part of their own education. And due to my own teaching background and my physical education background, I was very fit uh, and healthy in, in those days and still am to, to a degree. Um, you know, the, uh, my, my duty sergeant had put my name forward. Um, I ended up down in the what they call transit training camp with 50 other coppers, um, of which we went through sort of a whole selection process. We got, uh, got down to the last five, and then from five we got down to the last three, and out of the last three, myself and another guy got chosen. So that in itself was an honour um, to be doing that. <clears throat> and then, uh, of course, a large amount of training, hectic training, uh, mainly a self-defence situation, but also to, you know, tracking in terms of, you know, following people, um, knowing what to look for, particularly in crowds, you know, because you're standing beside your, um, the person standing beside Prince Edward um, in a crowd, you've got to keep your eyes open and keep your wits about you. So a lot of training in that aspect. But, you know, thinking back on it too, if someone wanted to actually get to them, they could have done, no matter what you could have done, they could have taken them out, not easily, but certainly um, there was always that threat there. So was it a relaxing job? No, not at all. Was it a fun job? Oh, awesome. Was it uh, interesting? Tremendously so. You know, and I had the great honour of escorting him back to England. And once I got back to England, we, uh, we lived actually in Windsor Castle. And that was an uh, interesting part too, actually. Um, we went to Buckingham Palace first and, uh, and sort of stayed there a little bit. Um, in Buckingham Palace, I was, remember I was in the policeman's office in Buckingham Palace looking out the window looking at the main gate of Buckingham Palace. And um, a few years prior to that, I'd actually been standing outside Buckingham Palace at the main gate as a, as a tourist looking in. I took a photograph through that main gate to Buckingham Palace. And when I was inside, I took a photograph from the window looking back onto that main gate. It was, uh, it was quite interesting. I actually married the two photographs up some years later. And the same with Windsor Castle. I actually lived in Windsor Castle for, uh, for a little bit and lived in one of the turrets in Windsor Castle. And I took a photograph out of the turret window looking down on the gate that I'd actually stood there as a tourist, same thing, looking up, taking a photograph. So that was really quite uh, surreal to be in those sort of two places, uh, looking back down where I'd stood some years before, but loved it. It was a, pretty stressful, yeah, <laughs> and I expected to, uh, to jump in front of him and take a bullet, so to speak. Um, and would we have done that? Sure. You know, that was what it was all about. That was what the job was all about. Uh, nice guy. You know, got on with well, I say still talk to him to this day. Send them some of our products. Actually, quite uh, quite recently, uh, which I've got a got a note from and a letter come back from them. So that was really nice. Um, yeah, loved it, loved it. Unfortunately, after that, you know, I, I have these goals. I set these goals, and I couldn't beat what I'd done. You know, I, once Prince Edward back came, went back to England. I came back from England as well. I went back to my own home station, um, back on the beach, so to speak back into the paperwork and the cars and um, thought, you know what, 
I've reached kind of the pinnacle here. I could go up in promotion and so on, but I've really reached the pinnacle of what I wanted to do. What's next on the list? And that's where the, the chiropractic came in. So we're talking back to goal setting again, Kevin. You know, I seem to last about uh, eight, nine years in a job, although in chiropractic I last long because I had a family. Um, but, yeah, once you reach those goals, it's move on, and the goals with the royal family and so on, which is just an awesome goal, something I've, yeah, treasure, treasure that time. I can imagine. And, yeah, it would have been extremely amazing. And I know Cindy always talks fondly about your different roles. You've certainly led an interesting life. And one thing I'd say for both of you, incredible researchers. Yes, she's incredibly passionate about food, nutrition, but an amazing researcher. You're an incredible researcher, pre-planner. You also really strategically organize things. And you're also very much about people's safety, which is very highly regarded. But tell us honestly, you can say it now because here's your opportunity. What is it like being married to Cindy O'Meara? <laughs> oh, is Cindy going to listen to this? <laughs> Go on, tell us. Oh, look, um, challenging would be a word. Um, yeah, how to, to go on from there. Um, you know, she's, she's a, a lady who I highly respect. Her, her knowledge, oh, it's just incredible. I don't know how Cindy reads all the stuff that she does and is able to regurgitate it at a later date, sometimes years down the track, you know. Um, so immense, immense respect for, for that. Um, you know, and other aspects, you know, we got on so well because we both love the outdoors. You know, we both love camping and trekking and, you know, certainly not, not so much boating. She grew up in Bendigo, sort of country town where I grew up on the water. So that was a bit of a challenge uh, for Cindy to get in the water and swim and, and surf and that kind of stuff. But, you know, life, is, life has never been a dull moment. You know, we're always doing something or planning or trekking or tripping or overseas or with our kids or, or something like that. So it's never dull. It's never dull. It's challenging. <laughs> And never dull. <laughs> She's amazing. <And laughs> Perhaps I should not go any more into it than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she'd appreciate it. She, um, <laughs> one thing that she talks very highly about you, and yes, she had written her book, and you guys, you did to keep money. We didn't really talk about this, but whilst you're, you know, touring around in the bus, you would pull up and offer adjustments and chiropractic care for all the communities and everyone. She was writing her book, homeschooling the kids and got a forward payment for her books and things like that. So incredible team, really, and just a never-say-die attitude, both of you, and that certainly extends into all of your kids. I was just wondering, you know, for her, you know, she was at that point where what she was bringing in a year by herself with maybe a part-time PA, then there was a moment where the two of you looked at it and you kind of came in with a whole set of fresh eyes and you took that business from what she was bringing in a year to basically, I don't know, whatever, whether it's what she could earn in a year, you've now done in a day or a week or a month, doesn't really matter. The fact is that you have multiplied, expanded and grown that business beyond anything. Can you tell us what was the, what was the insight, the aha for you when you were took, taking a look at that and went, I see something here? What, what did you see? It's, um, it sort of occurred. Uh, organically, really. Yeah, we'd come back from Australia, uh, from Australia, come back from the trip around Australia, and uh, I'd sold, already sold my chiropractic practice. And I didn't really want to go back into that um, environment, beautiful environment, 
I don't get me wrong, I didn't want to get back locked into an office. I'd really enjoyed the two years out around Australia and being outside all the time, and, and it really suited my soul. So I started looking for another job. You know what job is? It's just over broke. Um, I couldn't find anything. I really sort of had my, set my heart tingling and my eyes alight. And Cindy was kind of struggling a little bit with what she was doing. Um, overwhelmed probably would be the, the terminology. So I thought, well, I'll help you here. So I started, I took over really the website, redeveloped the website a little bit, um, start to set up sort of various programs and, and stuff and start to enjoy it, get a bit of a handle on it. And then um, when I said to Cindy, look, people are asking us about the products that you write about in your book. And we're not sure, you know, we tell them, but we're not sure we're getting the right product, we're getting organic or getting the right amounts, or da, 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 da. So I said, well, look, we'll bring in um, a little bit of the salt, a certain type of salt that we had, Himalayan sea salt mixed with some other stuff that we sort of put in, and um, just see how it goes. And I remember, you know, I ordered 500 kilos of the salt, and it came in and we put it into these bags and we stacked, stuck a crappy little label on it. And uh, put it out to our very small database at that particular time. And we sold out of the stuff, you know, within a week. I kind of, that was the light bulb moment. Come on, you know, that people, people want to have the stuff from a reputable company or someone who knows what the heck they're doing. But they also want it easy, right? So they want good stuff, they want organic, they really want to do it themselves, trusted company, and make it easy. So I kind of went, you know what? I can do something here. Um, and then we had a we went and had a personality test done. And I think if anyone's getting into business with their partners or their wives or their loved ones, I think it's so important you go and get this personality done to find out what your strengths are and your skills are and what your weaknesses are. Because I'm certainly not an idle person. I cannot sit down and do book work, you know, um, dot the I's and cross the T's. That's not me whatsoever. So I learned that my spirit was an entrepreneurial spirit which, you know, suited me down to the T. I never, no one ever really named it before, but now once someone said, oh, you're, you're an entrepreneur, that sort of, yeah, clicked right in because I love building things and getting them up and going. And then once they're up and going, well, I've reached my goal, then I'm out of there. So this kind of went, okay, I'm the entrepreneur spirit. Cindy sort of, and I could see way into the future. I could see 10 years ahead. Cindy could see the next day or the end of the week, but she didn't, didn't want to look ahead, didn't want to look further than that. So, we kind of worked together. We slipped into that role very, very easily and very well. And I'd never really been involved in business. I'd been in a chiropractic business and I head down a mass up and had a very successful chiropractic business, but it was hands-on. So I just started reading, you know, this learning thing I talked about earlier on, you know, just started learning and reading and developing and, and books, business books and personal books and personal development books and, and team books and team leadership Um one of my favorite books is Robin Sharma, you know, the leader who has no title. And I devoured all that stuff. And, and virtually the business grew from there. You know, as I improved my own self on business and my own self on leadership, so to do the business grow. Uh, and that's, that's really what it comes down to. We start talking about business. Business is all about leadership. It's all about the people that you have. And it's all about everyone being on the same boat, rowing in the same direction. And that's what I learned. You know, from going from a one-man band or two-man band of the chiropractic because had someone working for me to uh, 35 people here at one stage, um, you know, it has been an awesome growing experience, a learning experience, ups and downs, massive ups, massive downs, 
But again, as I said before, you just got to keep moving forward and learn from experience. That's certainly what, what we had along the way, lots of learning experiences, lots of fun, lots of heartache. Um, but, yeah, it's a multimillion-dollar business as we have today. Yeah, it's incredible. You guys are such a pioneer around this and certainly someone I've really appreciated getting advice from and have really appreciated the honesty and the insights that you guys have both provided me with and I feel very grateful you've got an incredible team that's for sure and Nathan your general manager is as exceptional as is Karen and all the others Ruthie I mean changing habits I always you know I'm always claiming myself as someone that's in there as well I just feel like you know the fact that I sleep with Cindy occasionally when we go away speaking I'm definitely <laughs> part of the whole family <laughs> I just imagine I always picture well, I sleep with Danny too Kim so yeah, I, I know I know and I always picture like if I'm lying there next to her and I just touch her with my finger or something I'll just get that osmosis that effect that everything she knows will just somehow embed itself into me <laughs> hasn't quite yep. worked yet um, but you know this is definitely the self-love podcast and you have certainly been open and vulnerable and very honest and I'm very very grateful and I know the person listening to this is is also just really interested what would your definition of self-love be definition of self-love um the belief that you hold that you're a valuable and worthy person would be my definition of self-love. Yeah, and you can t- attach other things off that. There, you contribute to the world in a positive way. Um, you contribute to your family in a positive way, and you contribute to yourself as well in a positive way. No, you don't talk yourself down. You know, you hold yourself in high esteem. What about those of us that occasionally do talk ourselves down? What about those of us that sometimes do feel on shaky ground or wobbling about what the world's saying or thinking or we have a bit of self-doubt or fear creeps in or that horrible sabotaging thoughts of not good enough, not knowing enough, not pretty enough, not tall enough, not strong enough, whatever it is, many of us have those thoughts. What's your advice on how to hold ourselves strong? Well, that comes down to actually um, an Anthony Robbins quote that I, I live by as well. You know, when you get down, you know, whether you're tired or you're, you've had a tough day somewhere, that's the time you know, that you can get down on yourself, you know, that the, the self-love doesn't come through. And Anthony Robbins says, you know, if you're not in a powerful state, don't make any decisions. If you're tired, if you're hungry, if you're angry or something you've had, a, something's gone on with the day, no, don't get down on yourself. Don't make any bad decisions. Don't make any decisions at all. Just quietly get through that day. Wait till you're in a more powerful state and move on from there. So, you know, that would be my, my whole um, advice there. You know, don't get down on yourself. Have a look at what's happening around you. You know, have you had a bad day? Is it tough? Are you tired? Are you hungry? Kids got on top of you. If the answer is a yes to any of those questions, then don't make any decisions. Stop getting down on yourself. Get a good night's sleep. Eat well. Plenty of water. Go out and exercise. Tomorrow's another day. Yeah, beautiful. And what about, though, for the couples? Most women are listening to this, but I dare say with a podcast like this, they're going to ask their partners to tune in on this. And you said at the beginning that you've been in a lot of groups and different things. Community is really important to you and being a part of um, men being able to speak openly and vulnerably and with care and love and, and even, as you say, crying. 
if if a man in particular, because you know, I, I hate to say it, I heard on the statistics the other day at a at a business conference that four out of five suicides here on the Sunshine Coast alone are men. What is your yeah. thoughts around that? I touched briefly a while ago um, on occupation, and I think. Probably dare I say I know that men have lost their way. You know, I saw we're saw we we are certainly more emotional, and we're certainly more connected to our emotions and connected to um, the environment, things around us. But I think also too, they've lost their way. Now, you know, whose fault is that? I don't know. How's it happened? I don't really know. Um, what's created it? I don't really know. Now we see, um, I think there's a stronger role of, of, of ladies and women you know, within the family these days. Um, there's a sharing of roles more. Um, you see far more uh, ladies now up in the higher echelons of the companies. Um, and please don't take me wrong. You know, listen to, I'm not criticising this at all. Um, you know, I think it's great. But for some blokes, a lot of blokes, they've lost their way. They don't actually know who the heck they are anymore. Um, and that's, you know, if you're not in a powerful state, don't get down on yourself, you know. Take responsibility for what happens to yourself and, for goodness sake, move on. Anthony Robbins, again, you know, obviously I was talking about a lot. He's a big mentor of mine. I had the great privilege of working very closely with him, uh, in fact, being his bodyguard for a while. Um, you know, great mentor. You know, so basically you've got to get enough leverage on yourself. If you're hurting enough, stop hurting. Get enough leverage on yourself to move forward and move on. You know, and if you're feeling okay, you have lost your way, lost who you are, talk to some people. Plenty of groups out there now. But the biggest thing is get a handle on yourself, move forward, keep moving forward, get enough leverage on yourself to make that change. Again, how quickly can you change? You can change in a blink of an eyelid. Okay. And that's by changing, that's changing your attitude. Obviously, you can't change something physical in a blink of an eyelid, but you can change your attitude. You can go, right, I'm moving forward. I'm out of this. I'm not doing this anymore. Bang, done. I think you're right, and I think it's taking action. One of the things, you know, we can do when we're feeling down on ourselves, we stop taking action, we sabotage ourselves more, we eat all the wrong foods or we drink things we shouldn't or, you know, we behave in a way we shouldn't. And I think what you're saying is that pause but also taking responsibility. We may not be able to change the things around us, but we can certainly change how we respond to them. And one of the things that I admire hugely in you is that when things aren't feeling right for you, you go after finding out what you can do to either fix it, if that's the right word, or at least change it. And so are you saying then for men, or for any of us for that matter, that if we're going to sit back and wait for someone to come and rescue us and save us from feeling this way, we may be barking up the wrong tree and that it's important to take action either to read a book, listen to a podcast, enroll or find out the local groups. You actually almost have to take responsibility by taking action. Is that is that the correct thing that you're saying? Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, no one is going to come and rescue you. You have to rescue yourself. Certainly you can read books as well, you know, and help and join groups, but it comes down to you. In the long run, it comes down to you. And taking action is very, very important. No, you just can't become the poor me syndrome and sit on your backside. You've got to take action. Now, taking action doesn't necessarily mean moving in the right direction. It just simply means sometimes moving, getting your body up, 
moving. Don't sit on the couch and wallow in self-pity. Get out and go for a walk. Get out and get your body moving. Get out and breathe the fresh air. Go for a swim. Go for a walk. Go anything. Do anything just to get your body in action. And once your body's in action, then, you know, the endorphins start to kick in and various things start to happen and you start to think a bit more clearly. So that taking action is very, very, very important. Get leverage on yourself. Get up and move. Get going. Get moving. Yeah, another one I use is life is not a dress rehearsal. You know, you're only here once. Don't waste it. You know, you can't keep practicing and practicing and then practicing and then going, well, you know, okay, well, practicing and practicing and poor me, it's not working. Well, you know, there's no such thing as failure. I said before, any results, you know, just get up and get going. One thing I used to tell the kids or teach the kids, you know, is that you know, an aeroplane will take off here from the Sunshine Coast and fly to Sydney. Does it fly in a direct line? No, hell no, yeah, because there's always wind or it's blowing slightly off course, but you've got a pilot in the front who's correcting it. And if you actually looked at their flight path, it would not be a direct line from Sunshine Coast to Sydney. You know, it, it wavers off its path and it corrects itself, comes back, and it might overcorrect and go the other way, but then it corrects again, comes back. You know, life's a bit like that. You know, you've got to be, you're never, ever, ever going to get directly from point A to point B correctly. You're always going to waver as long as you've got that goal that belief system, your self-love, the ability to get up and go, enough leverage on yourself, you can correct it, get back on track, overcorrect it, get back on, and you'll reach that goal. Very important. You're amazing and someone who does that very, very well. I know we're coming to the close. I know we could oh, talk we? longer. I know, <laughs> I'm I know. enjoying that. <laughs> I know. So good, so good. Oh, yeah. If there was you know, a favourite quote, I know you said a couple of quotes. Is there any other quotes that you would share with us today? Um, look, I've given you three or four there. There's one a bit longer, um, if I could read it out to you. Um, so, yeah. So I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. For the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle for me. It is a splendid torch of which I have to hold up, but for a brief moment, and I'll make it burn brightly as possible before handing it on to my future generation. Gives me tingles just imagining it. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. I have that up on my wall uh, in my office, and I see that every day, every day. Yep. Which gives you purpose and a real sense of um, drive and I'm sure the difference that you and Cindy together and individually are making is certainly, as your company is called, changing lives, changing habits, and certainly impacting us in ways you may never, ever fully comprehend. So I just want to say thank you so much for being on the Self Love Podcast. I've really enjoyed our interview today. And just in closing, Howie, is there any message that you would love to say to the Self Love Podcast listener? It's just very, very important to keep moving forward, you know, to, to, to love yourself, very much so, but keep moving forward. You're going to have setbacks. You're going to take you know, time We think, what the heck is this all about? Pick yourself up, move forward, keep going. Never, ever, ever, ever give up. Howard Amira, what a delight. Thank you so much for joining me on the Self Love Podcast. I cannot wait to share this with the beautiful listeners. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you, Kim. Appreciate it. Hi, everyone, and stay safe and well. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family. And head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. 
That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.